Welcome to this highlights show. We've had some fantastic guests on the first 20 shows of the Leeds Business Podcast, and we've covered a wide range of topics and heard some amazing stories. My guests have shared everything from suicide attempts to 20 million pound turnover businesses crashing, surprise exits, prison sentences, and everything in between. There have been some fascinating tales and some brilliant learnings. For this episode, I've chosen some personal highlights from each of the episodes numbers 11 to 20. Hopefully there'll be a few of your favourites in there too, and if you've missed any of them, feel free to dig back into the archives and give them a listen. So, let's get into them. In episode 11, we met Howard Moss of Astonish. He told us what he thought the three main points were to make a great business leader. I think for me, Phil, the three things that I would say have stood me in the best stead have been definitely you can be um, the most creative, the most um, whatever you want to call brilliant business person there is without great people you're not going to be able certainly in the industry I'm in um, to maximize that journey um, without great people supporting you so um, certainly how do you get them great people um, like I've said I've made mistakes in the past where there might have been an agency who've gone out to recruit and um, you might have let your head get influenced by the fact of somebody coming from this huge multinational that automatically they're going to be shoehorned into your own business and be this great success. So I think over the years now, um, what has been a massive benefit to me is definitely the people I've brought in and when I'm bringing them people in, what do I look for? I look for values. I don't look for what somebody is, you know, that exact talent to the role I'm bringing in. So if, if take, for example, Mark, our commercial director, um, Mark was somebody who I knew of him already, but I knew the values that he had. And I knew the values of, what he stood for as an individual. And whilst I was bringing him in as somebody who could get astonishing to all the leading grocer chains, um, I knew that I had the right product. And if I can get the person with the right values, I just know that that synergy is gonna work for me. So that's the kind of aspect that I've used with a lot of key individuals that I've brought in, Phil, and probably the six or seven most influential people that I work alongside here at Astonish and I'm fortunate enough to have here at Astonish are people that I know. And because I knew them already, I knew what values they had and I knew what values they could bring um, to Astonish as a business and, and to me as a business owner. So I definitely would say to people that um, for Kiki, people that you're looking to bring in don't be scared that you know them don't be scared that they could be family or friends or whatever look for values in what somebody stands for and if that person stands for great values and they tick them great values um, to me I think um, that's the most important thing in an individual coming to you the second most important thing um, I think you've got to get your cost structure right so, so many people I hear, um, they make some massive flaws in the way that they can take a product like our, our leading mold and mildew blaster here, and they'll cost the, uh, the bottle, the top, the label, um, and the ingredients. And let's say that comes out at 50 pence, 
they'll say, right, I want to earn 40% margin, and then that's it. They don't cost in all the factors like wastage, like the utilities. The, they don't cost in even the overheads of the office, the admin people, the finance people. Um, they'll just factor in what the immediate primary costs are um, that they're seeing. So I see so many um, business um, startups fill, um, or I hear of them, that unfortunately fail because they don't get their cost structure right. And I think what I've always done is whenever we're coming out with anything is getting that cost structure absolutely right so that I know 100% from start to finish where we're at in terms of um, you know our sell price to what our cost base is. Um, and I think, you know, ultimately, um, the last part is, as an individual business owner, you've got to have huge self-belief. And I don't mean that in arrogance, Phil. I don't mean that in, um, you know, uh, uh, not uh, respecting anybody else's views in the business. Far from that. But when I look at the journey I've been on, if I didn't have that inner self-belief always, when I've come up against tremendous challenges and difficulties, um, I think I'd buckle if I didn't truly believe um, in not only what I'm doing, but what I'm capable of, of driving us forward and, and what I believe in our brand and product. So you, you, you really do, you have to have that, that true belief to keep driving yourself forward and, and being um, incredibly determined to get to your, to your end goal. In many episodes, we discussed the effects that COVID had on businesses. No story was more shocking than that of David Richmond, formerly owner of Arrow Cars, and what it did to his business. March 2020. March 2020. We're we leading into it. Yeah. Fantastic business. Everything is fine. COVID hits. Yeah. Well, COVID. What happened? Okay. COVID hitting was a disaster in many ways. As you can imagine, the business was profitable April, May, June, July, August, September, October. Yep. We didn't really make money in the winter months. Okay. We also bought our cars in the January. Okay. Every year to get ready <laughs> for the summer season. Okay. So we've got a large quantity of new, brand spanking new cars, all plated. Right. That costs money. Yep. And to keep the plate, you have to keep the insurance. So you can't suddenly park them up and then take the insurance off. Yep. Um, and just as the busy period is about to start, the industry gets fully closed down. Now, that's okay if it's a few months, one month, two months, three months, four months. But our losses were, were violent and quick. Yeah. And even though the business was a wealthy business, it was burning cash at a colossal rate. That was okay for a period, but it reopened in the June. Okay. And we thought, well, it's going to start to pick up, but then the government started changing the rules. If you all look back, I was out for lunch one Sunday with my wife in Helmsley and news come up that everybody in Spain has 24 hours to get back. And if they're not back within 24 hours to get put in quarantine. 
And it was that moment I realized this is a problem. Yeah. This isn't just going to be for the next month or two months. This is going to be a long-term, a long-term problem. Um, and there was also at that time, there was no market to sell cars. There was no market to do anything. Mm -hmm. We'd lost our driver base yeah. anyway. Uh, but the, so, so the airport business was effectively closed down Yeah, and it effectively stayed closed until the February 21. Right. Okay. So the business is closed for a year. Effectively, effectively yeah. closed. It was doing bits and yeah. pieces, but when I say bits and pieces, but we also then couldn't get back our drivers because even then when it reopened, yeah, we couldn't really do a lot as the drivers are now gone working for other companies because th there was no airport business. So we were the first business to fully close yeah, and we were the last industry yeah. to open and there was zero confidence. In a fascinating episode 13, we met Adam Smith of Surplus to Purpose and he told us all about the issue of surplus food, that it was an environmental, not a social issue. It's at that point then that we do three things. So uh, our main objective is the catering because that allows us to use food that um, would have otherwise gone to waste that can't go into retail. Uh, we have a supermarket which we open three days a week where people could come in and buy a box from us. Uh, but that is effectively all the food that we can't shift goes into this space and people come and they can just buy a box of food from us, um, uh, as many boxes as they like. And then we redistribute food as well. So we redistribute food to other charities, projects. Um, we send stuff to the front line in Ukraine, over to Poland, refugee camps in Calais, um, many organisations across Leeds. There's a lot of homeless groups that come and get drinks from us that we supply for free. Uh, and we also have a community fridge that people come down and just grab a uh, grab some food out of and that's completely free at the point of access for anybody that turns up um so yeah but the main focus is the catering and the reason being is because you can't put black bananas into the retail environment because customers just wouldn't accept them but i can make them into smoothies or i can make them into banana bread so catering allows us to uh, apply people with skills, train people, but it allows us to have a much more bigger impact um, on food that would have otherwise gone to waste if we went down the other activities with it. Um, so yeah, we'd like to consider ourselves hopefully in year three, or at least by the end of year three, as one of the largest environmental caterers in the UK, uh, just for the sheer fact that of the, the volume of food that we intercept, uh, but also the amount of food that we cater and, and who we supply to. Um, for me, we do a lot of weddings. I've done about 25 weddings in the past two to three years um, across the UK. A lot of people will question and say, why are you feeding surplus food to people at weddings? Shouldn't you be feeding it to homeless people or people in need? Well, I could feed all the poor people on the planet, but there'll still be food waste. And it doesn't actually do anything. It just sustains both problems in my eyes. Um, we keep needing people to be poor in order to keep feeding food waste. And I want to kind of separate that rhetoric and um, create a narrative around the fact that we grow too much food and we need to deal with this at an environmental uh, level. And for me, the people that can do that are the demographics that wouldn't necessarily you associate with food banks or being on benefits. Those that we kind of use, supply the food to generally through these third sector organizations. I go to weddings and speak to fathers of the brides and they've sat there eating sea bass and ribs and quinoa salads and going, you're telling me all this food would have gone to waste? And then I'm like, yeah, it's like, I didn't realize that this was the type of food that went to waste. You know, I thought it was stale bread or moldy fruit and vegetables. I didn't realize that people were throwing away this type of food. You know, I pay this for this food and, and this is getting thrown away and they start getting angry about it and you start educating them. And 
you feel like maybe you had a bit more impact than no disrespect feeding a queue of people that need the food because they have the capacity to go in and do something about it whereas the people that need it really don't because they're really hand to mouth and day by day you know i support lots of organizations that do that kind of work and my heart goes out to them all but i'm here to try and have a systematic change and a much more impactful change so yeah the the focus is can we tap into demographics of people who would never ever eat surplus food and try to educate them around the problem uh, but using surplus food as a tool and a mechanism to be able to do that in episode 14 paul dodd of all good told us a brilliant tale about a new business pitch that he took part in. We got an introduction to the marketing manager and he said, we're looking for a new agency. Um, I thought we were in, so we went for a meeting, got along like a house on fire. And then he said, actually, it's a pitch. And I said, I don't pitch, James. I just don't believe in pitching. I don't believe in pitching. It's like, I just think, who pays for that? Because all pitches, most pitches are free, right? The existing clients pay for it, don't they? Because you, you have to take the time from them who are paying. And once that, say you win that client, if they then go on, you're then using their money to pitch for the next one. So the money's got to come from somewhere. So I never used to agree with it, but something was different with this one. I just had a real inkling and um, I said, right, okay, James, we're going to go for it. We're up against three other people. And I just said to the team, we've got to do something different. We've got to do something different. We had a really good creative idea. I said, we need to wow them. And um, again, just had an epiphany, probably in the shower, you know, <laughs> and I came into work and I was like, so broad, the Broadway is a huge, big shopping complex, but it's an entertainment complex as well. So they've got a cinema. They, they were about to get like a, a, like a soft play center or a bowling alley or something like that, Ninja Warrior, all this kind of stuff, loads of restaurants. And what they wanted to do was go from being known as shopping to being known as an entertainment center. And I just walked into the team one morning and I said, why don't we pitch in the cinema? <laughs> and they were like, can you do that? I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> so I said, why don't we find out? So we rang up the light and I said, right, this is top secret because the management team was the people we pitched to. And I said, can we hire your cinema to pitch to your management? You can't tell anyone. They said, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'll have to ask. Because it's it not long open, right? So then they said, um, yeah, you can, you know, 200 quid, whatever, for two hours. Um, I said, right, book it in. <laughs> you know, we had our slot. And I said, you have to keep this quiet. No one can find out or it's ruined. So we then created this presentation, you know, really kind of hardworking keynote, lots of animation in it. And we went along to test it in the cinema. And I'm thinking, what is this magic? How do they get the stuff on from there onto there? You know, how do they get Marvel movies from there onto there? And we turned up and he said, here's the HDMI cable, plug it into your laptop. And I'm like, is that it? I was thinking there was more magic than that, Phil. I thought it was going to be, you know. So we literally plugged this in and our, our, our work was gigantic on this thing. And what we'd done was we created a movie trailer. Because we thought if we're in a cinema, right, we want a movie trailer to get. So we, we tested that and the sound nearly blew our head off because we created a real Marvel kind of cinematic, you know, inner world kind of trailer. Um, so, yeah, then we went away and on the day we, we designed uh, we designed like um, pitch pop, you know, for the, the drinks, you know, the, the Coca-Cola kind of pitch pop, pitch popcorn. We designed tickets. And so we, 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 I walked into the Broadway Bradford's office 
and they're all they're all kind of they're all waiting to come in. So they come into the thing, and just as I was walking in, James, my contact, goes, "Have you got any boards?" And I'm like, "No." I had nothing on me. I had nothing on me. I had not even a USB stick. And he went, have you got a presentation? I was like, no. And he goes, oh. He goes, go and sit in the room. And apparently I heard afterwards, he went into the meeting room and he went, he's in there. He's on his own and he's got nothing to show us. It's going to be a fucking disaster. (laughs) (laughs) He came into the meeting room a little bit like sort of this. And they all sat down, did introductions. And Anna said, do you mind just standing up? And everyone's kind of looking around. So already the power shifted. I said, I said, do you want to come with me? I just started walking out and they were like, and then I, I said, no, come with me. So literally the pitch power shifted from them being in control to me being in control. So I walked them, I walked them out. I said, grab your bag. You're going to need it. We walked them downstairs out into the Bradford street and they were going, what's going on? At this point they were like, I'm already sold. So then we walk in and then it started to clock the penny drop. They went, we're going to the cinema, aren't we? And we got to the door and I handed them tickets. They're all personalised with the seat number. We walked into the cinema. Our senior designer, Vicky, was there as an usher with a lanyard. He said, let me show you two seats with a torch. Sat on down, popcorn's there. Music, lights go down. We hit play and it just went, boof, with this crazy trailer, you know. Um, and, yeah, then the trailer finished. They were like this. And then I... I I did the Steve Jobs thing at the front of the front of the screen and, and took them through like a 90 minute presentation. And uh, right at the end, we give them each a paper. So the paper, um, it because they said one of the things was they said they get a bad rap in the press from, you know, Telegraph, Telegraph and Argus kind of thing. So we developed a paper that was from the future and it said Broadway transforms Bradford and we handed it. And then in the paper, it had all our examples of work. And they, they took that away. So, And we won. In episode 15, Lee J. Walker, joint MD of the Business Desk, talked to us about the differences when selling abroad. One of the greatest things that I learned was dealing, dealing on an international level and dealing with different cultures. You know, Dubai really is a massive uh, melting pot of a variety of different cultures. You know, it's uh, got a very large uh, UK, British expatriate um, uh, uh, you know, pe- uh, people there. It's it's um, you have to deal differently on different sales fronts with different uh, different cultures there. Whether or not it's the Emiratis or whether it's you do do a business with an Indian subcontinent. And one of the things I, I learned how to to deal is when you're dealing with people when English isn't the first language, uh, and that that taught me a lot. But also the the nuances with, with business as well De- dealing for me dealing with business in the middle east was very much about people didn't used to say no to to no we don't want to do this there wasn't as blunt as there might have been you know doing sales in in yorkshire people were a lot more polite sometimes and um uh, uh, sometimes you had to see through what were buying signals from doing business with people and really knowing what you can concentrate on and what you can't concentrate on and that that's taught me well actually as as well now because we know, instinct, you know, I've got a sixth sense in business, what, what is what I call a prospect or a suspect. You know, what is worth investing in, you know, from a business opportunity perspective and what is, you know, something that's never going to happen. And that's something I always try to rub off on my sales team as well, how to really get down to that. While we're running through all these highlights, let me remind you about the Leeds Business Podcast, Fair Deal. The Fair Deal has two sides to it. My side to it is, as you can see and hear, 
I bring you lots of fascinating, interesting and inspiring guests, totally for free. Your side of the deal is you have to do two things. Number one, recommend this podcast to one person you feel will get a benefit from it. And number two, leave us a review, either on the Apple Podcast app at podchaser.com or give us a thumbs up and a five star from Spotify. And if you're watching, hi to everybody who's watching, give us a big thumbs up and a review on YouTube. That's it. That's the Leeds Business Podcast. Fair deal. Episode 16 with Jacob Hill of Offploy was probably one of the most thought-provoking episodes we had. Here's Jacob telling us about how he got arrested at Leeds Fest. As the business got those £90,000 of sales versus the £1 million of sales and we were going out and I realised I, I was in personal debt. For me, the obvious choice was, well, how do I pay this debt off quickly so that I can live debt free and go on to the next enterprise or God forbid, get better at the next proposed enterprise. And for me, it was a case of drugs are easy to get at a festival, get some drugs and sell them. Okay. Not the best idea. Um, there's damage that comes with that. There's damage for predominantly people around me, people that, that will be taking it. And I, I, I have no idea of the consequences that it might have had on others around me. Um, no idea. Um, but then you think about the people within my inner circle who, you know, saw what the outcomes of that were. And then myself, who was taking the drugs. Um, and, and it all it all obviously spirals out very quickly. And, and I was at this festival. I was I had drugs on me and undercover security um, arrested me. Um, and lo and behold, this was at Leeds Fest. Full circle from where the idea started to where it all ended. And undercover security arrested me and they took me out of the festival and I had my ID on me and I had my lazy camper hoodie on. I don't know what that was about. I have no idea what that was about. Some said I a, wasn't a very good drug dealer. Other people said it was a way to kind of pull the ripcord on everything and just kind of get everything to fail at once. It was an escape and out, whatever. Personally, I thought I was indestructible. I didn't ask for help. I didn't think I was doing any damage or any wrong. Um, I thought I'd get away with it. I had all the arrogance and all the the belief that I, I, I you know, I can do, I'm, I can do anything I want. You know, they've put me on TV, they've put me, I can achieve anything. I can achieve it. I could be the best drug dealer ever. And thankfully I was arrested. Thankfully I was taken out of the, the festival. Um, the guy saw my ID and I'm the spitting image of my mother. And he saw my ID, my name and my address. And he was like, you're Jane's son, aren't you? Um, and he knew my mum. I said, how do you know my mum? That was a stupid question. And he said, because I've worked with her for 30 years in the police. Mum's a, mum was a retired police officer. In episode 17, Martin Wollstonecroft of Art Bars told us a brilliant way to judge whether you've got a good business. In terms of setting a business up, I take a great inspiration from a, a Japanese model called Ikigai, which is, I think it's spelled I-K-I-G-A-I. -I -I. So have a Google of that. And this model is about meaning. And this is very left field, this. And you won't see this in many, many, how to write a business plan or a strategy. But it starts with, do what you love. So do what, number one, do what you love. So in terms of do what you're passionate about, what you really love doing. Because there can't be anything worse than 
thinking about setting up a business that you don't love doing. You've got a real passion because when it gets tough, and it will get tough, you know, you need to really believe in it, passionate about it, and that will help you work through that. So I would say step one, do what you love. Second thing is do what the world needs. What What is the gap in the market? Step three, what you can make money from. So all this is just common sense and very, very simple. And then finally, do what you're good at. And the combination of those four attributes will make you decide whether you should set up in terms of your business idea or not. Because you've got to do what you love, like I said, that you're very, very passionate about and you're really interested in that. You know, you've got to do what there's a gap in the market for and what what the world needs, because otherwise you won't sell anything, you won't make anything, no one will buy it from you. You've got to do what you can make a good profit out of. Because if you're not going to get paid for it, you know, you might love doing it. You might think there's a market for it, but if you're only making it 2p on each one, it's a waste of bloody time. Absolutely pointless. And then finally is do what you're good at, which is very, very important because you might love doing something, but you might be crap at it. You might be rubbish. So that combination of all four of those areas will help you understand whether you've got the right idea to set up a business. Do you love doing it? Is there a market there for it? Can you make profit out of it? And are you good at it? You need to tick all those four boxes and bringing those four boxes together will make you a very successful, happy, rich and contented person. Very simple there, Phil, that's it. We've mentioned COVID already, but in episode 18, Russell Bissett of Northern Monk told us how he faced up to the challenges that COVID brought. So yeah, COVID was was okay, as it were. I think, you know, recognising um, and setting aside some of the, 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 the hardship and challenges we face as a society on a purely on a business level, we saw it as, um, you know, uh, a challenge uh, and one that we, we, we tried our best to rise to. Um, uh, I've since, you know, framed it to the team as, um, you know, entering a kind of an apprentice style challenge in that like the you know all bets were off it was a totally clean slate and you were presented with a totally new operating environment um and it was one that you know we 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 looked to and and we looked to see how we could pivot um uh and, and embrace it and, and trade through as best we could so for us that meant that we doubled down on d2c so we had quite a strong d2c business already but we we um we doubled down on that, so we offered like twice monthly um, uh, beer subscription up from kind of once a month, uh, and offered a number of different tiers within that. 
Um, we focus really on, on releases that would really resonate with people um, uh, 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 and lend themselves to kind of a D2C and online retail um, scenario. So one of them was like um, a pub crawl uh, through the medium of, of beer cans. So there was like different beers that you would drink in each room of the house. So one was like the shower head, one was the sofa arms, things like that, that, you know, really resonated with people. Episode 19 and 20 featured Alex Craven. But here's my favorite pick from it when Alex was telling us about what he called a mind-bending meeting with the receivers. And that was quite an extraordinary experience because uh, I didn't really know what receivership was. Um, and what actually happened was completely mind-bending. So um, the administrator comes into the office, you sign away your company, um, they take ownership of it. I'm sat in a board meeting at the end of the day. This is all done after the staff have gone home so that they won't know what's going on. Um, and as soon as the um, my, our investors signed that document, the receiver turned around to the room and he said to my investor, who I, I won't name, um, you've done this too many times and uh, I'm not letting you do it again. Uh, if you proceed with this course of action, I, I will report you to company's house and I will make sure you are struck off all your directorships. <laughs> And I, I was on my own going, well, what is happening? And so the tone of the room really goes weird. Um, and I'm asked to leave, to sit outside my own boardroom for about three hours, from something like that, in the dark at night, without a clue what was going on. And then um, eventually I'm invited back into the boardroom uh, as my investors leave, uh, who shake my hand and wish me well in the future so that was really weird like okay and basically what they started off by saying was look don't worry alex we'll put you into receivership we'll take you out of receivership you can have a small stake in your company i think they were offering me 20 percent between me and my other two co-founders uh and then we'll uh sack off all this debt you know strip the company down and carry on um what happened when i went back in the room was right alex um would you like, do you think this is business has got a future? Yes. Uh, have you got any, I say, well, no, his actual words where I remember this, he says, I, I assume you're not a man of means. <laughs> I mean, that is a, a very correct assumption. You know, I have, you know, student loans and an overdraft and all this stuff. He said, right, can you pay me? I think it was 45,000 pounds out of the trade, ongoing trading of the business over the next 12 months. If you can, I will give you 100% of this company back today and i walked out of that room with 100 percent of the company when i went in thinking i was going to get walk out with 20 percent wow uh and we took on all the debt and we paid it all, paid it all back um bar a couple of couple of bits i really tried hard to pay it all back it was it, but it was really hard work i mean it was cash flow wise it was horrific for the next 18 months but we traded through it Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found it interesting, inspiring, and of use. To make sure you don't miss out on any future episodes, please subscribe to the show. Go on, do it now. Do it now before you go off and do something else. Thank you, much appreciated. Oh, and don't forget our fair deal. See you next week. <laughs>